0: I'm Chris Reback. This is Political Wire Conversations. Before we begin today, I want to share just a couple of words with you about our terrific sponsor, Slingbox. Slingbox is the best way to watch your TV anywhere, whether you're at home or halfway around the world, right on your laptop, tablet, or smartphone. Here's how it works. Slingbox brings your cable set-top box, satellite receiver, or DVR, frankly, your whole at-home TV experience Right to your favorite mobile device, wherever you are in the world, and with no monthly fees. Now, Slingbox delivers your TV anywhere, but don't be confused. Other products only stream to your local Wi-Fi network or provide a small subset of channels. Some streaming sport apps black out specific games, teams, or even entire sports. Most of them are geo-blocked or don't work internationally. Only Slingbox delivers your live TV channels and your recorded shows right to your smartphone, tablet, or laptop, whether you're in the backyard, at your buddy's house, or on the road. Now, Slingbox has a special offer for Political Wire listeners. Go to slingbox.com slash wire and get $50 off plus free shipping on a new Slingbox. That's slingbox.com slash wire to get $50 off plus free shipping on a new Slingbox. And now to our conversation. At first glance, today's conversation might seem as surprising as dog bites man. Money has taken over our political process. I know, a shocker. But what if I told you that quite possibly our next president will be chosen by five or six of the richest people in America, or a dozen, certainly no more than a hundred? It's hardly an exaggeration. From the historic growth of PACs to the Supreme Court's 2010 Citizens United decision through now the increasing mega wealth of the top 0.01 percent, the role of the super rich in politics has grown exponentially. Control of America's future has shifted from political parties to power players, individuals who bankroll campaigns and collect politicians like sports franchises. And this is no fantasy league. What does this shift in money and influence mean for our political future? Who are these individuals, and what are they doing to our democracy? While you may know some of the names, Koch or Adelson or Soros or Katzenberg, you likely don't know them all. Ken Vogel, however, does. Ken covers the confluence of money, politics, and influence for Politico. He's also author of the new must-read book, Big Money, 2.5 billion dollars, one suspicious vehicle and a pimp on the trail of the ultra rich hijacking American politics. Ken, thanks for joining me. I know we're going to spend most of our time talking about how money corrupts the political system, but we just had the biggest political upset in years. Cantor losing to Tea Party or David Bratt despite having outraised him some 5.5 million dollars to Bratt's 200,000. Did we just blow the whole thesis of your book here?
1: Uh, No, actually, Chris, one of the things that we address is that money uh, has a huge impact on the process, but sometimes it's not the impact that donors intend. And in this case, you have an example of that. Uh, Eric Cantor and his campaign spent a ton of money going after this relatively unknown uh, Tea Party challenger, Dave Brat. And on election night, as things were appearing to tilt towards Brat's way, He thanked Cantor, and he thanked Cantor's consultants for spending all that money driving up his name ID. Uh, Clearly not a textbook case of how to go about neutralizing a challenge and an example of how big money can, in fact, backfire, although it should be pointed out that the type of big money that I'm talking about is sort of outside unlimited spending. and There wasn't a whole lot of that in Cantor's race. I did hear, uh, and I have not seen this reported anywhere, so maybe we can break some news here, that in fact there were a number of these big money groups that are funded by these deep pocketed donors who did in fact express interest in going into the, uh, going into the race on Cantor's behalf, airing ads, and some of Cantor's allies said, you know what, no thanks, we got this. Clearly they didn't, and they would have been well served by having more, uh, money at the end sort of attempting to neutralize this threat.
0: That's incredible. Yeah. If they, uh, you know, if they did have those opportunities and, and didn't take them, um, it just, uh, you know, it's a, it's such a shock. And the, the whole thing was it. One, one of the stats, and I think the craziest stat, and this came out and, and you, you've tweeted about it and you, you actually, you, your, your tweets about it were, were interesting to me. And this, of course, is the, 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 famous steakhouse money that Cantor spent. Right. Yeah. Right. The, you know, 168 grand at steakhouse as compared with the 200,000 of his challenger. You, you know, on the face of it, you know, a guy like me reads that. Stat and and says, well, you know, there you go. There's there's everything you need to know about what's you know about the problem in politics. Some some of your tweets, you you weren't you were maybe less outraged or or you know or or questioning of that than than maybe I would have expected. But or or was your view kind of like, look, man, anyone out there who's surprised by this, you know, you you haven't seen what I've seen poolside uh, in Indian Hills, California
1: yeah that's right and and you know this is an example this money was spent by his campaign committee on fundraising, I mean, that's what, he's not treating his staff to huge steak dinners every night. Uh, what he's doing is holding fundraisers at Bobby Van and some of these places around town where traditional hard money fundraising has taken place, and, and Cantor was a master. He was actually an emerging master of the big money uh, world that I wrote about, and it'll be interesting to see what he does now because I've heard some speculation that maybe he could go more fully into this world and really deploy his fundraising talents in a way where he is not – Uh, sort of burdened by or subject to these campaign finance restrictions that do apply to sitting members of Congress. However, even within that world of sitting members of Congress who uh, are subject to these campaign finance restrictions, he was a master of this hard dollar fundraising, and he spent a lot of time and his campaign spent a lot of money holding fundraisers. Steakhouses are where you hold fundraisers in Washington, D.C. And so the campaign finance reports show that, in fact, he paid a lot of money to these houses to raise money. And, in fact, it was an effective technique. I mean, his return on investment, which is something that uh, good fundraisers are measured by, you know, anyone can spend a ton of money to raise money. Michelle Bachman was sort of a master of this. She spent a ton of money buying lists and doing direct mail. So she raised a lot of money, but really her return on investment wasn't that high. Cantor could bring, could and did bring together PAC directors and other big donors in uh, an intimate setting like a steakhouse, smooth their pants off, uh, and and managed to collect quite a bit of money. And he raised, he was a prolific fundraiser and was not wasting money at these steakhouses. This was money well spent, although obviously, again, uh, well spent being uh, relative, given that he outraged his opponent by so much and still wasn't able to pull off a win. But in the confines of just traditional fundraising, that's not at all unusual to spend that kind of money in a steakhouse.
0: And I'm so struck by your term, but, but I mean, you really have hit it, and that is what it is, and that is what you've written about, and that is what you've revealed, you know, with details and stories, you know, beyond what, what we've seen previously. It's an investment. And, and these are mega rich, super rich, and they are looking to make an investment, and they expect a return.
1: Yeah, they definitely do, and the, what they expect in return is, is what's sort of most interesting to me. You know, the type of hard-dollar fundraising that Eric Cantor is doing, where you have these companies through their political action committees or through their lobbyists who are spending regulated money to schmooze politicians or um, or party committees or uh, camp, or uh, chairman of uh, committees, they expect some sort of legislative return, um on investment and it's different than some of the uh, big money that is spent where they're sort of spending it for um, uh, where they're sort of spending it in a way that is not necessarily directly you can't directly equate that with a return on investment Uh, that money I think is spent more because these folks are passionate about either a candidate or a cause or Frankly, they are loyal to a candidate, and there's a little bit of ego involved, too, where these are the folks who are spending a ton of money on these super PACs, and they expect to uh, get some kind of access, not necessarily because they want to um, make a bunch of uh, money off of it, but rather because they are – goal is to sort of get out there in
0: the political world that 's fascinating yeah they' they 're operating in a in a different league if you will and and that does come across and and it's you know you, you wrote about it the sports franchise you know parallel and a lot of these are, are folks who who do literally own sports franchises and and you know I guess this doesn 't quite hold because with the latest news and the clippers and you know the the return on investment that uh, sterling has gotten off of that, I guess you know you can kind of think of a sports franchise now as a really good but, but a lot of folks who, take, who get sports franchises do it because it's an incredible toy. It's an incredible ego boost. You know, it's a pretty good thing to, you know, walk around and be able to say you own the LA Lakers or the Boston Celtics or, uh, uh, you know, the, the New York Yankees. Um, it, it, there's some parallel between that and uh, the, the, what these the super rich and what the, these folks are looking for um, when they invest in these politicians. Is that, is that right? Did I get that right out of your book?
1: Yeah, yeah, I think that's right. And the analogy is really interesting, both because, as you mentioned, there is, in fact, some overlap between uh, these, these pools of folks, the pools of folks who invest in a sports franchise and invest, I use that term sort of loosely, uh, in most cases, but and those who invest in candidates. And again, it's also sort of uh, a loose use of the term invest because on the big money side. A, there's no guarantee of success. You know, don't you have, you have to look a whole lot than 2012 to see that a ton of money can be spent and not produce the intended result that these uh, donors want. And, and B, because there is a lot of ego that goes on. These are folks who have been super successful, whatever their chosen fields are, accumulated these huge fortunes. And they think that because they have made all this money uh, and that their aptitude has been sort of borne out and their expertise and judgment have been shown to be correct in their chosen field, that that same uh, sort of expertise can apply seamlessly to the world of sports or the world of politics. Um, And so they think that, well, let's take Sheldon Adelson, for example, the Las Vegas casino mogul who spent $20 million trying to, get Newt Gingrich the Republican presidential nomination in 2012. Obviously, uh, you know, folks who were savvy to politics, like your listeners, were looking at that as it was going on and thinking, you know, you could invest a quadrillion dollars in Newt Gingrich is still not going to be president. But Sheldon Adelson is a guy who's made this fortune fucking conventional wisdom. You know, he went into Las Vegas when it was seen as a seedy gambling town and built a convention and sort of family and business travel empire there and folks said no that can't be done that's a waste of your money he did it he was right he rushed into macau the uh, chinese territory and built a, a las vegas style casino empire there when folks said "No, you know what macau is not ready for that he gambled he won again his judgment was proven right so there were all these folks around him telling him newt gingrich He's a loser. He said, there's no way he can be elected president. You're wasting your money. And he said, you know what? I trust my judgment. I've been right. My gut leads in the right direction. And so here again, I'm going to prove the credit's wrong, and I'm going to spend this money, and it's going to redound to my benefit and the benefit of the candidate to whom uh, I've been loyal for all these years. And it did not apply. And it's sort of synonymous to the sports team owners who meddle in the process, and they – tell the GM, hey, you should maybe think about picking this quarterback, and they tell the coach, hey, you should maybe think about running that play. And just because you made a ton of money in uh, amusement parks, to use the example of uh, of uh, Washington Redskins owner Dan Snyder, it doesn't mean that your expertise and your gut are going to help you uh, win a Super Bowl. And in fact... Uh, Dan Snyder's meddling like that of so many other sports team owners has proven disastrous for the franchise, much like some of these mega donors who have tried to get involved, not just picking candidates, but even picking campaign strategies. You saw Foster Freeze, the sugar daddy who supported Rick Santorum's presidential campaign in 2012, opposite Sheldon Adelson's support for Newt Gingrich. He actually told this super PAC that he was funding, that he wanted ads to focus on the threat of Islamic extremism. Well, he may care about that. Rick Santora may care about that. But it's not the first issue on the minds of voters in New Hampshire as they're going into the primary, first primary in the state voting booth to pull the lever. And therefore, uh, it was not successful, and it was not successful in other states where they aired those ads. But you know what? When you're the guy who's writing the six- or seven-figure check, it's tough for the operatives to say no. When you're the guy who owns the team, it's tough for the general manager or the coach to say no. So I think it's a good parallel, and it's one that has resulted in a lot of dilettantes having a lot of power and exercising it in ways that maybe don't make sense to the professionals or even the really savvy observers.
0: Yeah, Well, these scenes that you reveal and that you talk about and the, the stuff with Santorum and picking the, the ads down to that level was just unbelievable with, as you point out, a lot of the same success that uh, Dan Snyder has failed to find uh, in in Washington and with the Redskins. I want to ask you more about that. I want to ask you about the incredible scene that you open with um, with President Obama. I want to ask you about getting kicked out of Indian Wells Hotel, I guess, and pool scene and opportunity for you to let them know, you know, this isn't the nicest place it's ever kicked me out. Uh, but, but you know, you, get, <laughs> right. you got sent out of there too. Um, but first, I just want to share with our listeners a couple of words about our terrific sponsor, Brain HQ. Brain HQ is an online training system with 26 exercises that hone your attention, memory, brain speed, and more. They really work. How do I know? Because researchers at institutions from the Mayo Clinic to Yale have studied them. ...and shown real, measurable benefits to the brain... ...like 10 years improvement in memory. 10 years! Brain HQ adapts to your unique brain. As with physical exercise, brain exercise works best... ...when it's at the right level to challenge you personally... ...in the areas you need most. Brain HQ constantly adapts to your performance... ...to make sure you're training at the optimum level for your brain. You can get a 10% discount... On a Brain HQ subscription for finding out about it here. Just go to brainhq.com slash politicalwire. Again, that's brainhq.com slash political wire. Ken, you open your book with an incredible scene, President Obama making a private and personal pitch to a small group of folks uh, at the home of Costco co-founder Jeff Brotman. I think this was back in February 2012. Of course, in this small group, you had Bill Gates, you had Steve Ballmer, uh, as well as a bunch of others. They paid about 18 grand to, to be there. And in this private meeting, um, you quote and you make it clear you you've you know gathered this information you've talked to people who are either i think who who know about the meeting. Maybe you can tell me a little bit uh, about the reporting that you did but you you end up quoting uh Obama as saying um, there are five or six people in this room tonight that could simply make a decision this will be the next president and probably at least get a nomination if ultimately the person didn't win and that's not the way things are supposed to work, you, you add that Obama had become um, one of the the cynics really first, tell me about the scene. How did you hear about it? Um, how did you get the details and and what did folks in the room think when they heard Obama say this?
1: Yeah, I got a real uh, detailed download from someone who had knowledge of uh, of, of this uh, scene of this fundraiser and uh it was it was really extraordinary to hear uh, this recounted to me because of course Obama since his earliest days in politics back in the 90s had uh cast himself as really a reformer who was going to change this system as uh, a proponent of reducing the influence of big money in politics i mean it was a central part of his identity it wasn't just like one of a series of issues it was kind of how he got into politics Uh, It was his number one issue when he was in the Illinois State Senate. He championed and ended up uh, being one of the sponsors of a piece of legislation that passed that changed the way that lobbyists had to report how much money they raised. And ditto in the U.S. Senate. Uh, his, His sort of top... Senate accomplishment during his brief Senate career, which he cited during his two thousand and eight presidential campaign, was this his participation in this post Jack Abramoff series of lobbying reforms, again addressing how uh, contributions bundled by lobbyists should be reported and, and ended up being reported so This is a guy who was a campaign finance reformer. Uh, clearly, folks who saw in him a champion on this issue have been somewhat disappointed by his both his embrace eventual embrace of big money uh, politics endorsing his own super PAC but also his failure to really do anything proactively to get this money out of politics, nonetheless, for them even. This was a bit jarring to hear him say these things that we heard about him saying at this fundraiser. It essentially amounts to like raising the white flag on this, you know, multi-year effort that he's engaged in to uh, you know, diminish the power and the role of money in politics. And he goes even further than the quote that you read. He says Uh, And he sort of, you asked about the reaction of donors, so they're kind of laughing, like, uncomfortably, because a lot of liberal donors, even the ones who write the very, very big checks, have sort of mixed emotions about this and fancy themselves to be reformers who would prefer... That big money of the sort that they were providing was not so influential in politics. So, someone asked him this question. That's what prompted him to go off on this. And as he is getting even more specific, you know, first he says 200 people could decide who's elected president. Then he kind of steps back and he says, you know what, actually, there are five or six people in this room tonight who could decide. And they're kind of laughing. And he's like, no, 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 I'm serious. And he sort of raises his eyebrows, according to the source who recounted this to me, and steps toward Gates in particular, who's standing there awkwardly by this magnificent grand piano under this abstract impressionist art that's hanging all over the walls of this gorgeous mansion and he says bill you could just write a check and just swamp and he kind of stopped because i assume because he's sort of getting ahead of himself and getting uh, and making uh, gates uncomfortable gates is standing there with his hands in his pockets kind of looking awkwardly at his feet like yeah, that may be true. However, it's not uh, It's not every day that you get the sitting president of the United States sort of calling you out and saying that you could choose the next president of the United States. But A, it's telling that you have this guy who is, you know, uh, who, who has for years worked to avoid a result like this admitting it, and B, that he's admitting it to these donors, uh, and C, that he's kind of raising the white flag, like I said. He's kind of saying, you know what, this is the new normal. And it is. And he goes on to talk about you know, you would need a constitutional amendment to change the situation, a constitutional amendment to roll back the effects of Citizens United. He says maybe he would work for that during his second term. In fact, he suggested he would. Well, A, that's really, really hard to do to pass a constitutional amendment. B, he hasn't done anything. I mean, he hasn't done anything, not just on a constitutional amendment front, but really on campaign finance reform at all during his second term. And then, See, you know, even when there is there is some sort of public will, you see these polls that show that people do care about this and it does bother them that this uh, big money is playing this much of a role in politics, it's still very, very difficult to pass any legislation on this front and typically only follows a major scandal like... Watergate or like the Abramoff scandal or the Clinton uh, fundraising scandals and the Enron uh, campaign finance scandals that sort of prompted McCain-Feingold in 2002, and I just don't see anything like that on the horizon.
0: Yeah, You, you know, you talk about uh, Gates standing a, alongside a grand piano with his hands in his pockets. Um, I'm not sure that those were Gates' hands in Gates' pockets.
1: <laughs> right. Is, well, is it's it? interesting, actually, you know, just for a sec, Chris, there are certainly very, very wealthy conservatives who have stepped forward, like the Koch brothers, like Sheldon Adelson, folks who are at the top of the billionaires list and have really engaged in this new big money politics in a big way. And there are very, very wealthy liberals. I mean, Bill Gates is richer than either of the Koch brothers, yet he's been sort of a moderate, mid-tier, I mean, even low-tier donor. If he were to give as much of a percentage of his net worth as the, to Democrats as the Koch brothers, give and steer towards Republicans, it would be a game changer, and liberals, up to and including President Obama in this anecdote, have assiduously courted Gates, and he just hasn't bitten, he hasn't dived in in the way that some of his conservative counterparts have.
0: And that that was actually going to be my my next question. Is this a, does it, do you find that it it slants one way, Democrat or Republican, or, or is this a bipartisan concern?
1: I think that it has to this point been something that conservatives have kind of embraced more quickly and more fully uh, after Citizens United. Part of that, I think, is because they were in the minority. They were in the opposition. Democrats had the White House and therefore maybe weren't as uh, motivated or impassioned to, to dig as deeply or write as many zeros on the end of their checks as Republicans were. And as a result of being out of power, Republicans also were kind of casting about for for, uh, a direction of the party that might lead them back to the promised land. Uh, I think that that's changing, both changed because Republicans did spend so much in 2010 and recaptured the House of Representatives, and liberals saw, hey, we better step up and and sort of join this race, otherwise we're going to get crushed, which is why you had Obama at events like the one that we just talked about. And then I think even more so, Headed into 2016, where there is now shaping up a fight for the sort of soul of the Democratic Party, and and a not just a, a fight to determine who will represent the party at the top of the ticket in the 2016 presidential election, but also to determine sort of its its foundational principles. You already see the the big donors and some of the the savviest operatives trying to coalesce behind Hillary Clinton to avoid this kind of fight, like we saw with Republicans in 2012. But all it takes, this is the lesson of the 2012 Republican presidential primary, is one megadonor or a handful of megadonors who think uh, either I don't want Hillary Clinton at the top of the ticket or Hillary Clinton is not aggressive enough on my issues. And there are already a couple of issues that are shaping up as potential fault lines where there are big donors who are willing to invest in an alternative to a Hillary Clinton or at least in in a challenge to the party stances on those issues, those being environmental issues, where you see a Tom Steyer, the retired San Francisco hedge fund billionaire, who is uh, promising to spend $50 million money in 2014 in the midterms. Imagine how much you'd be willing to spend in 2016 to get an environmental champion at the top of the party ticket. And then you have a uh, sort of progressive economic populism, this idea that income inequality should be a bigger issue and the folks who are of that mind don't necessarily see an advocate in Hillary Clinton who is going to emphasize that to the degree to which they'd like it emphasized. And they are looking for a champion and they look towards Elizabeth Warren. She has a lot of support from that crowd. She said she won't run. Maybe she won't. But there will be someone who will run to Hillary's left on either environmental issues or on income inequality And that person, all they need is one sugar daddy, and it could throw the party's best laid plans into total chaos, like it did for Mitt Romney and the desired coronation of him. uh, And it ended up hurting Republicans, ultimately, because it sent Mitt Romney sort of limping into the general election. Democrats, I think, now are susceptible, potentially, in 2016 to a similar dynamic.
0: So take me inside one of these what you called a, a political investors conference. Now I, I don't know you. This is the first conversation that we've had, but you seem like the kind of fella who who would enjoy spending time at a at a resort out in the desert. And so lo and behold, you found yourself uh, in Indian Wells, California, um, in April, I guess, of two thousand thirteen, the uh, Renaissance Esmeralda Resort Hotel, and it turned out to be you, um, uh, some other folks at a music concert. And uh what sounded to be about a dozen of the wealthiest people in America um in a dog and pony political show tell me paint that scene because it was just it was remarkable reading about it. Paint that scene of of what you came across um, there in uh, uh the palm springs indian wells desert
1: yeah absolutely you know what's what's interesting is typically the Koch i mean the Koch brothers are very secretive when it comes to these donor seminars, and these donor seminars really are a foundational part of their Political involvement in their political money activism, because while the Koch brothers are worth a lot of money, they what their real uh, what their sort of real what separates them from other big donors is that they have a, f- a whole network of very wealthy people who give a lot of money into their uh, political groups and their political operations. So they bring them together twice a year for these donor seminars and they like these donor seminars to be as secret as possible because these are folks whose for whom privacy is a big deal and uh, uh... it's it's always closed and it's actually quite difficult to find out even where it is but yeah, I love case, I loved
0: that, I loved that line of yours. Well, how, how did you get here, sir? Well, um, I, I drove in the front gate. Yeah.
1: and, and right. your, case, your
0: explanation of how you got there.
1: Yeah, and, and in this case, I was able to do that, which is a rarity, because this is the first donor conference that they had after the 2012 election. And after the 2012 election, they, were, they and their donors were obviously rather disappointed with the result. Uh, and so they took a few months to do sort of what they describe as a forensic analysis of what went wrong and what went right. And as a result, they delayed their donor seminar uh, to allow them to finish this so they could present the results to their donors. And while they had bought out the hotel for the original scheduled date of the conference, they were unable able to buy out all the rooms in the hotel for the Newgate because there was this uh, country music festival in town at the Coachella Fairgrounds where they have the famous uh, rock concert every summer. This is the country version of that. And so there were people who had uh, bought up rooms in the hotel who were associated with either the sponsors of the conference or the acts that were playing there. There were even some of the bands that were there. And so you had this real weird mix of these, you know, septuagenarian major industrialist donors and then these you know cowboy hat wearing uh bikini clad uh you know cowboy boot trotting uh uh country music stars and groupies and roadies and sponsors uh and so i was able to get in because there were there were other guests in the hotel and conceivably i could have been one of the folks there for stagecoach so i got in and i kind of hung around the bar and and eavesdrop on conversations between donors and uh, Governor Nikki Haley, who was Nursing a glass of red wine and talking about stock car racing. There's obviously a big racetrack in South Carolina, Darlington. Uh, Ron Johnson, who was talking with these two donors, one of whom was complaining about how the RNC isn't really up to uh, up to snuff, isn't really performing that well in this new big money environment, and Johnson seemed to be. I, I subsequently called him about this to, just to clarify his his and, what what he was saying. And he's, the the, he's the he's
0: sen- the this the the senator from Wisconsin. Just to be clear.
1: Yeah, so the Ron Johnson Center from Wisconsin seemed to be telling these donors, hey, you know, if you don't like the RNC, give your money here. Give it to us. He referred to the Coke network as us. And uh, I called him later to clarify what he was talking about, and he said, no, 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 he wasn't disparaging the RNC at all. In fact, the RNC chairman, Reince Priebus, is from Wisconsin, where Ron Johnson is from, and he thinks very highly of him. But it was really just this fascinating scene where you saw some of the, the, the matchmaking between these major donors and between the groups, the operatives who, uh, who uh, run these outside groups, and, and between the politicians themselves. Uh, and this is sort of becoming the new place where politics occurs you know we'd all we've always had the smoky back rooms but in the past there have been party leaders there and folks who were sort of accountable in a general sense to at least the party activists and the uh political party committees if not to the public themselves and now you have this this sort of even more exclusive even more private club that's occurring in, you know that's that's meeting in these hotels and uh resorts at posh destinations across the country and There's very little public accountability unless you're able to sneak in and catch someone saying something, but that's not really any way to have sort of a systematic disclosure regimen that allows voters to know sort of who is backing whom.
0: Yeah, and, and you get to kind of the, the, one of the, one of the core points, because I, I found myself wondering, how's the average person, any of us, me, kind of supposed to feel about this? I mean, you know, the, the thought that political parties have less power or will get reduced power, I mean, on some level, that doesn't bum me out so much. I mean, I, right. I don't know, you know, I don't know that many of us feel that the political parties have, have done a great service and have been interested in, in, you know, I don't want to be too cynical. I, I believe in government. I believe in, uh, you know, public policy. Um, but, but, you know, that the, the, the political parties haven't done a great deal for the public concern. I mean, many many folks feel that way. I mean, so, so you know, if they're losing control, well, you know, maybe that's not so bad. On the other hand, of course, what you describe, you know, closed clubs, you know, fifty million, hundred million, you know, several billion needed to get into the club. You know, I don't think I necessarily like uh, a system where that's where the decisions are being made either. You, you, where are we? How's an average voter? How am I supposed to feel about this, where we are, and and, and where we can go?
1: Yeah, I mean, you hit it right on the head there, Chris. I, I What I write in my book is that in a perverse way, this new system is more democratic because it sort of takes it out of the hands of these party leaders, but it's only democratic for the people who have enough cash to buy it, and there's very few, and increasingly few, as the sort of... Disparity in the distribution of wealth widens. Um, you know, on the one hand, yes, the parties you're right have have uh, uh, not always been the best stewards of the public interest. On the other hand, there was kind of the sense that like they were the adults in the room, and then when push came to shove, that they would be able to strike a deal uh, between the party leaders that would be in the best interest of their constituents, would balance the interest of the donors with the special interest with the constituents and the good of the country as a whole, and maybe even the world as a whole. Um, You know, now it's much harder for the party leaders to broker a deal like that, and you don't have to look any further than the 2013 government shutdown when John Boehner was trying to bring his conference along and the members of his conference along to get the votes necessary to approve a deal that he had struck with uh, Harry Reid and President Obama uh, to end the shutdown, you know that would lift the debt ceiling, and he could not bring along the members of his caucus because they he really didn't have anything to offer. He didn't have either a, a threat, you know, that he could withhold money from them or withhold earmarks from them. Because of course he and, and the uh, just discussed Eric Cantor had uh, done away with earmarks, but they didn't have the money and the power to go ahead and protect like promise protection for these uh... vulnerable members uh... in in very conservative districts who might face a tea party primary if they voted for the compromise deal to raise the debt ceiling in fact these tea party members who might be vulnerable to a primary had more to gain by bucking the party because the tea party groups the deep pocketed deep big donor-backed tea party groups uh... wanted there to be this shutdown and so these members saw these Tea Party groups and these big donors who supported them as more the constituency that they needed to please than the party leadership themselves. And so the, the, the very interesting scene that I write about that was unfolding right as these negotiations between Boehner, the first negotiations between Boehner, Reed McConnell, and uh, Pelosi and Obama were occurring at the White House a mile down the road, a mile down Pennsylvania Avenue as they were meeting. American Crossroads, Carl Rose Big Super PAC was holding a donor summit where all these big donors, along with some of the politicians who you would think would be in these meetings, like Greg Walden, the uh, chairman of the National Republican Congressional Committee, a uh, uh, congressman from Oregon, were, were meeting with these big donors, and this is the sort of establishment country club wing of the Republican Party and its deepest pockets, and talking about what we need to do to crush the Tea Party and what we need to do to wrest control the Republican Party back from these big, deep-pocketed outside groups by having our own deep-pocketed outside groups oppose them. And so uh, the way I uh, framed it is like this is where the real action was occurring. If there was going to be a deal, it would be because the donors at this meeting a mile away from the White House agreed that, hey, we would invest in protecting those who ended up voting for this deal uh, or at least attempting to offset whatever challenge they got from these other deep pockets who were backing the Tea Party groups. And isn't that just so telling that you have these two meetings happening at the same time? And in my mind, at least, uh, the one at the uh, uh, Four Seasons in Georgetown, the Carl Rove American Crossroads meeting was at least as significant as the one in the White House.
0: Well, there are so many meetings and so many deep pockets and so much to report about. We we didn't even get to talk about the suspicious vehicle or the pimp. Uh, you have to but buy the there's book. there's yeah, but you'll have to buy the book. Um, but there's so much there. Ken Vogel, uh, who who covers the confluence of money, politics, and influence for Politico. He's the author of Big Money, Two Point Five Billion Dollars, One Suspicious Vehicle, and a Pimp on the trail of the ultra-rich hijacking of American politics. Ken, thank you so much for taking the time. I'm Chris Reback. This is Political Wire Conversations.